Welcome to the Sustainability Report podcast, where we talk about how environmental, social, and governance issues impact on companies and investments, and how investors and businesses respond to these issues. I'm Rachel Allenbeckis, publisher of the Sustainability Report, which you can find at www.thesustainabilityreport.com.au. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking human rights impacts on corporate supply chains and what risks they can pose for investors. We're speaking with Mons Carlson Sweeney, who's the head of ESG research at Osbo Investment Management, which is a specialist investment manager in the management of Australian equities for major superannuation funds, institutional investors, master trust, and retail clients. As head of ESG research, Mons is responsible for analyzing how sustainability issues can impact on the listed companies in which they invest. Mons recently traveled to China on a fact-finding trip and took tours of factories and met with workers to improve the understanding of some of the human rights impacts on the ground. We'll be exploring these questions in greater depth in a live panel discussion sponsored by Osbil and moderated by the Sustainability Report on the 18th of October in Sydney. For more information, please visit www.thesustainabilityreport.com.au. All right. Well, if I can start off with a general question first, Mons. Um, can you explain to me uh, the approach that Osbil takes when it comes to consideration of environmental, social, and governance matters, um, just as a sort of a general statement of the investment philosophy? Yes, we have a four-stage investment approach. So we first look at macroeconomic factors, then we look at sectorial factors, and then stock selection, and then finally portfolio construction. And ESG plays a part in all those four stages, but particularly when it comes to stock selection. Um, and, 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 the, and the way we look at ESG is a company's value comes from a number of factors, but more so from intangible factors, so things you might not see in a financial statement. So ESG analysis can help you to make more uh, informed investment decisions. So examples would be a company's corporate governance, a company's um, supplier relationships, customer relationships, etc. So by having independent ESG research in-house, so proprietary ESG research that we do, we can have an in-depth view on some of these issues and therefore make better informed investment decisions. And uh, in terms of the specific uh, topic that we're going to be discussing uh, in, in this podcast, um, what are the impacts on supply chain issues when it comes to some of the uh, some of the issues that you tend to specialize in, uh, sort of the consumer, the fast-moving consumables, um, apparel, appliances, and some of the other companies that you analyze with respect to supply chain issues? Yeah, I think supply chain issues are important for a number of reasons. If you if you start off looking at the company's brand, um, a brand can be very sensitive to issues in the supply chain, whether that's labor rights or it could be product quality issues, etc. And a brand can be very expensive to, to to build up again. So if you've had an issue, it can be it can be a very time consuming and costly exercise to restore the brand value. And the other thing is, I think the way a company looks at ESG issues in the supply chain can also be a good proxy for management quality and it can be indicative of how it deals with other stakeholders. So for instance, if a company is paying lip service to ethical sourcing and labor rights in the supply chain, I think that can be a bit of an indicative um, uh, proxy for management quality and if they, if they pay lip service to ESG issues in the supply chain, what else does the company doesn't what what else does the company not manage properly? Mm. Has it ever have you ever found in your experience um, as a as a re- researcher and analyst uh, that a supply chain issue has actually compromised um, either short term or long term value of a company as a shareholder? 
Well, I think often over long term, and I, I, the way I look at it is companies that manage ESG issues well over time normally have better earning sustainability. So it, it's often a long, it's, a, it's often a long journey, um, and it comes back to what I said before about having a good quality management. That's one of the key investment factors we look at when we're making investment decisions. So it's not just about short-term earnings. So we want to invest in a company that has quality management and sustainable earnings as well. And often these issues in the supply chain can play out over time. So we're very happy to engage with companies and make sure the companies are doing what they can to minimize the risk of, say, production disruption and labor rights issues in the supply chain. And over time, we believe those companies perform better both both in terms of ESG, but also in financial terms. So in your career um, as an analyst with particular regard to these ESG issues, you've often gone actually into the field, so to speak, uh, gone overseas to check out conditions on the ground. Um, what value does that bring to your analysis? Uh, and maybe you, this can be a good lead on into your, your recent trip to China to talk about uh, issues on the ground as well. Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's very important. I think it's, it, this is this is a, a key step in really understanding what's happening on the ground. So I've been covering Australian equities from an ESG perspective for over six years, and supply chain management has been a focus area for me. And I went to Bangladesh to visit garment factories in 2014. I was in China in 2011 and 2012. So this time I really want to get an update on what's happening on the ground. So the purpose of this trip was to look at labor rights issues, but also environmental issues in the supply chain, particularly given the new environmental laws in China. So I want to see what that actually means in terms of risk and opportunities for listed retailers, both Australian listed retailers, but also international ones. So on this trip, I visited one garment factory in Guangzhou, but I also met with an impact group, which is a consultancy focused on workers' rights. And I also participated in a worker focus group. So that, that was together with a translator. And we could ask questions to factory workers in China about their pay and living expenses and working conditions. And that, that gives you an opportunity to talk directly to workers in a confidential environment outside the factory walls. Because often when you visit factories, you, you normally visit the, the, the relatively good ones. <laughs> And they're pre-announced. They know that they know that you know investors are coming to see them, so they have time to prepare for that. But I think the worker focus group was really important. Um, but even when you visit factories that have been prepared for a factory visit, you can still find issues, you know, uh, and that's not certainly been the case in the past. And often when you when you go through a factory and uh, and you speak to management, you can find out so much more. Um, when you're there on the ground uh, than you would if you just do desk-based research from, from Australia. So I think it's a critical element, and you can often get nuances. And the world isn't always as black and white as um, as, it, as it might seem. So there's often a lot of complexities. And you know, there's a lot of moving parts in the supply chain. You've got buyers who have their requirements on the factories. The factories themselves can feel feel under pressure. They can feel like the retailers are playing them out against each other on price. There can be differences between how an ethical sourcing manager approaches the uh, sorry the supplier versus how the um, procurement manager approaches the, the, the same supplier. So there can be conflict and demands on on the on the factory. And I think these things are very hard to understand unless you actually go there in person. And there's a lot of other th things too, and you can see differences between Bangladesh and China. 
Um, and there's a lot of things moving in the, in this space. So it, it, I thought it was a really worthwhile trip in that sense. Mm. Did you go to factories that supply uh, garments to Australian companies? First question. This particular trip, um, we saw a factory that mainly has U.S. and Australian, sorry, U.S. and uh, European clients. So they didn't export directly to Australian suppliers. Uh, but uh, is that does that um, are there is it comparable though in your opinion uh, what you would have observed in the factories and in that focus group with um, factory workers? Um, yes, would have been comparable to what experiences that suppliers to Australian companies would would be uh, would have in terms of working conditions and labour rights. Yes, it is, and, um, and and the workers focus group that, that that wasn't just for that factory. So that was a, a workers group from with workers from a variety of different industries. That's why I, th- I found it particularly useful because you could in- you could get insights into what was happening in different sub industries as well. And uh, I also have a list of factories used by Australian retailers anyway, so I can at least see them from the outside if I wanted to. Um, and 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 I, I I'm quite happy to see good factories when I go to China and Bangladesh because what what we really want as investors are for the retailers to engage with their suppliers. And we want the retailers to be best in class. And, and, and that's the other benefit of going on a field trip like this. If you can go and see good factories, you can see what's industry best practice and best in class. And then you can take that information with you home to Australia. So when you meet with Australian retailers, you, you try to move them up the curve in terms of what's industry best practice. So in a way, I think the value is actually better to see a good factory versus a bad factory. Mm. So it's interesting that there's this two-way nature to it, that not only are you taking on board observations that may impact on uh, investment decisions for underlying portfolios, but it's also feedback that you feed through to companies as well? Yeah, active ownership is a really important part for us as investors at Osbill. And uh, we have good corporate access, so we meet with companies regularly. And yeah, following my field trips, I normally contact some of the companies we have invested in, and I go through the key messages I found from 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 my trip, and then discuss how the companies are dealing with those particular issues. And that, that's why it's particularly good to have industry best practice examples. So you can you can you can um, because at the end of the day, a lot, a lot of the retailers are trying their best to you know because a lot of a lot of retailers want to have sustainable supply chains. There's a lot of complexities, and some some of the factors I think can be outside their own visibility. Sometimes even outside their um, their scope. So to, to to come back with some positive feedback in terms of how they can manage those issues, I think is really welcomed by the companies as well. So it's, it's about having a dialogue with the companies you invest in. It's the, uh, that's the thing that's always interested me about the supply chain. There's the known, you know, to quote, to go Rumsfeldian for a minute, there's always those the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns in your supply chain. And I imagine that for, um, you know, a large retailer that has, uh, you know, a complicated distributed supply chain, uh, those unknown unknowns uh, would be a source of some stress. Yes, yes, exactly. And I mean, the, the key issues like uh, subcontracting, for instance, um, it, it's very hard for a retailer to have full visibility over their supply chain unless they have people on the ground. Which is expensive, which sort of it is. the uh, the reason for outsourcing in the first place. Exactly. But, but I think with, with the whole um, move to more direct sourcing a couple of years ago, some Australian retailers have also increased their presence on the ground 
which I think is a really good way of ensuring or at least minimizing the risk of labor rights issues because that's the only way you can have full vis visibility of what's going on. Like annual audits, I don't think necessarily is the best way to, to manage supply relationships. They might be able to pick up on some of the issues, but ultimately you want to build up long-term relationships with your suppliers. That's, I think to me, that that's the, sounds a bit intangible, that's, that, that to me is the key way to avoid supply chain issues. It comes down to building up long-term relationships with your suppliers. And with that, there's less impetus for factory owners to take shortcuts on, on uh, labor rights issues, for instance. Which, again, is something that's very hard to measure from behind a desk looking at a company report. Uh, yes. Observation. So uh, without getting too much into the nitty-gritty of, of everything you saw what during the – was it an entire week you were there in, in, in Beijing and in Guangzhou? It was uh, um, from the 8th of September to the 13th of September. Five so days. Guangzhou so without getting into all the nitty-gritty there, what to you were the big takeaways um, – uh, both in terms of social issues and in terms of environmental issues um, that, that that's impacted your thinking uh, in, in terms of um, impacts on the supply chain? Yeah, I think the key messages would be, would be, if you look at China, it's actually managed to remain competitive against other countries in garment manufacturing mm -hmm. for longer than expected. Mm -hmm. But the industry doesn't appear to be considered as part of China's economic future. There are environmental issues and other factors in the consideration, and, and garments or the textile industry are not on the list of industries in the so-called Made in China in 2025 program. This is a list of industries that China lists as the, the future. So I think the garment industry doesn't really it, – it's not seen as an industry of the future there. And I think that can have some serious repercussions, not only for China, but on the whole global garment industry. So I'm happy to talk more about that at the, um, on the 18th of October, because there's some really big changes there. Yeah, sure. If, if, it's, if, if the garment industry is uh, not a priority for the, uh, for the economy of China, that means it's going to go to other countries, which has ramifications for the supply chain, I imagine. Absolutely. And that's going to have some wide, wide, widespread implications for the, for the global fast fashion industry. Um, in, in terms of um, implications, so you mentioned the fact that uh, due to impacts uh, of environmental law in China, um, are there labor implications in, in that decision making as well? Um, not so much actually, but but, but coming back to, to labor standards, okay. China has come a long way, I think, in terms of improving labor standards over time. And I, I measure where it is now compared to what I was there the first time in 2011 and also in 2012. So particularly when it comes to the worst types of issues in the supply chain. China has almost eradicated some of those. Some of those. But there's also signs that labor rights issues are rising again. And that could mean a risk of brand damage for retailers who are still sourcing from China. And that, that, that's because of a combination of things. I think it, you know, manufacturing is low in China, like in terms of manufacturing output. The, 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 um, the power balance between employees and employers have changed. I think there's also more pressure on factories to deliver on the shorter lead times, and that can be an issue, particularly when production is moving inland further away from the ports. So yeah, there's a few things that are changing, and I, they're actually moving in the wrong direction in terms of labor rights issues. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then two other key issues we see for supply chain sustainability, which is actually unchanged, um, not just in China, but every anywhere in the main main garment manufacturing countries in Southeast Asia are living wages and freedom of association and that's and by that I mean the right for workers to unionize um, 
and also the gap between the minimum wage or the actual take-home pay and what the living expenses are in a country. And as long as that's, that's a big gap there, I think there's a risk of supply chain disruption. But that's not China-specific. That's, that's it that's for, the whole, for the whole region. Have, and have there been changes around that, um, around uh, living wage versus minimum wage and freedom to association in China that you noticed while you were over there? Not a lot. Um, freedom association remains very poor. Yep. Uh, when it comes to living wages, the, the, in China it's interesting because people often people often focus on minimum wages, but in China the take-home pay for an average factory work is often twice the minimum wage. So it's actually quite high compared to other countries, even though the minimum wage is still you know many times higher than it is in Bangladesh. So it's, it's amazing how China has remained competitive for so long, but um, when you speak to workers, it, it's clear that the wage inflation in China is sort of slowing down because um, it's been it's been very high growth rates in the last couple of years in terms of wage inflation, but that's sort of slowing down. At the same time, living expenses are going up relatively faster, so the living wage gap m- might again increase in China, which is again will have implications in terms of disruptions to supply and uh, access to quality workers, which have impact on quality of of final product. I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And then if I look at other industries in terms of key messages from a trip to, I mean, we, the garment industry was one of the factors, or sorry, one of the industries we looked at. But it's also um, the local dairy industry is subject to significant growth constraints, um, for instance, related to food safety perception and waste issues. And also rare earths, I think, has a potential to become a next sort of conflict minerals issue in the supply chain. And also just general increased regulatory focus on pollution, which I think could drive up sourcing costs from China in a wide range of industries. But I'll, I'll talk more about that on the 18th. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, but that's interesting. So just uh, quickly on the dairy industry, um, does that does that indicate to you anything in terms of revaluation or valuation impacts on domestic Australian uh, dairy providers? Yeah, I think that the export opportunities are great for Australian companies. The only thing is... I think they just need to get the pricing right. So for an, for an Australian export, of course, you want to target the, the premium end of the market. But when you, when you speak to people on the ground in China, I think the general message there is the pricing strategy hasn't really matched the pricing expectations by the consumers. So once, that, once that's been worked out, I think... That's some great, great opportunities for Australian companies. That was Mans Carlson Sweeney, head of ESG research at Ausbill Investment Management. This episode was sponsored by Ausbill Investment Management. For more information on ESG risks to the supply chain, or to find out more on the live panel discussion I'll be moderating on the 18th of October, please visit www.thesustainabilityreport.com.au. For more information on Ausbill, please visit www.ausbill.com.au. 